First Timothy, chapter 1. And uh, the Apostle Paul writes here in chapter 1 and verse 18. He says, Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these, and so have shipwrecked their faith. Let's come before God in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word this morning, for these words of Paul written to his son in the faith, Timothy. Father, we pray that these words, would uh, you would apply them to our lives, that these would not remain the words of men, but this would be the word of God to us. Father, we pray that your words would be sown into hearts that are not like uh, stony or shallow soil, but, but hearts that are receptive to your word. Father, prepare us this morning, even as we study together, for what you are about to do and what is coming our way. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're starting a a new series, and we've titled this uh, new series Shipwrecked. And uh, we've titled it Shipwrecked not because 100 years ago today the Titanic sank. Actually, uh, before we... um, as we were planning this and, and, and putting out dates, Gary and I, and, and deciding on this theme, we, we, uh, didn't, we didn't actually know that. So this is purely coincidental. I just found out this morning Chase Bowers came to me and said, hey, did you know it was 100 years ago today the Titanic sank? No, we're, we've titled this shipwreck because we're borrowing from the Apostle Paul's metaphor that he uses to describe the perils of faith in a hostile world. When you, when you think of a shipwreck and all that goes along with, with that, right, the, all the other images that evokes, the storm, the sea, the wind, the crashing waves, the rocks over the breakers, when you think about all of that, the, the, the picture that we get is of our faith, your faith, my faith, being lived out in a very, very hostile world. A world that is not only inconvenient for faith, that is not only inhospitable to faith, but is outright hostile toward faith. Metaphors of the sea are used in one or two other places in the New Testament, aren't they? And each time we get this picture of of an environment that is so hostile that it could confuse, that it could disorient, that that it could actually have the potential to destroy and shipwreck a person's faith. And in the book of Ephesians, if you remember, we've just finished our series in Ephesians, um, but some weeks back we looked at that passage in Ephesians where Paul talks about being tossed like the waves of the sea, blown by every wind of teaching by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Apparently, it it is quite normal, it is the usual thing for us to live out our faith in a hostile world, in a world that is an assault on faith. I've got to be honest with you and say that I'm not entirely sure that Paul's metaphor of the storms and the sea and the shipwreck immediately connect with our situation. Um, I know we've, we've picked this now as our, as our theme for this series for the next few weeks, but uh, I'm not sure it immediately resonates with us. And, and, and the reason why, of course, is because we're in a very, very unusual situation. Well, we're in a really unu- very, very unique situation. Where, where we are, this is an anomaly. We're, we're in what is known the world over as the Bible Belt. I mean, imagine we live in a place nicknamed the Bible Belt. And it's amazing. It is amazing what God has done here. I mean, there are churches on every corner, right? And, and some of these churches are huge. I don't know if you've, if you've seen this. Um, this is the 
for a new building going up for First Dallas uh, Baptist Church. Uh, it's going to take up a large portion of the Dallas skyline. As you can see, it's a $130 million project, I think. And we can debate the pros and cons as to whether we think that's a good idea or a bad idea, but, but it's huge. It's huge. And, and Temple Bible Church has also been experiencing growth. Okay, not quite like that, uh, but, but we, we've, you know, we're, we're growing. We have actually have more people attending TBC now than we have ever done. And we're not the only church in town. There are other churches that are also experiencing that kind of growth. And so really when you look around you, well, let's be honest, we're, we're in calm waters and the skies are clear and the wind is billowing in our sails. It's blowing in us. And this is a perfect place to, to, to be sailing. This is plain sailing. And so it's, it's hard to imagine when we look at our present circumstances that, that we are about to get hit by a storm. Right, when, you, when you look around you and you see a church on every corner, uh, you don't immediately look up and see the gathering storm clouds overhead that are heading this way and are about to make this environment extremely hostile. It's just so hard to envisage, isn't it? When you see TBC growing like this and other churches in town growing like the way they are, it's hard to imagine that actually the cultural waters around us are getting choppier by the minute. By the minute. It's just so hard to imagine that we're about to get hit by a storm. Very difficult to envisage, don't you think? And so I want to remind you of something that I know I've said once before, but I want to remind you of this again because it's true. That there was a time in the life of the church back in England for our, our, our brothers and sisters in Christ back in Britain, where, where they had churches on every corner, like, like here. And, and these churches were growing. And if you showed up on a Sunday morning, these churches would be bursting at the seams, standing room only sometimes. They were growing. And if you and I had gone back there and we'd stood up amongst those people and, and, and you and I had said, look, well, wait, guys, we're in trouble here. We're in trouble because we're about to get hit by a storm and we are not ready for this storm. Not a storm like this. We are not ready for what's about to hit us. We're not ready for this storm. And and so this environment is about to become very, very hostile indeed. You know what? They they would have looked at you and they looked at me and they would have looked at us and said, what's wrong with these people? Can't they see there's a church on every corner? What's wrong with these people? Can't they see that these churches are growing? That we're bursting at the seams here? Can't can't they see that? But... But you see, what had happened was that the cultural wind had changed direction and, and, and the cultural waters were getting choppy. You, you see, it, it is possible for the, for the church to be growing and, and yet for the surrounding culture around the church to actually be drifting further and further away from the church. And the further away it drifts, the more hostile it becomes towards the church. Did, did you get that? Because this is really important that we understand this. It is, it is possible for the church to be growing, for, for numerous churches in town to be growing, And yet, for the same time, for the surrounding culture around the church to be drifting further and further away from the church and become increasingly, as the further away it drifts, becoming increasingly hostile toward the church. In fact, some of the growth that we experience may actually be because of that shift in culture. You you see, what happens is at first, you know, there's still a little bit of overlap. They're they're not too far apart, church and culture. But people can feel that that drag, right, that drift. And and, and they feel, okay, I've I've got to choose between culture, church, culture, church, culture, culture. No, I think I'll go with the church. And so some of the all, but some of our growth may be because of that cultural shift. It is possible for the church to be growing, and yet at the same time for the, for the surrounding culture around that church to be drifting further and further away from the church and becoming increasingly hostile towards the church. And that is exactly what happened in England. I mean, we could nuance it with all sorts of little details, but that's essentially what happened. And I've got to be honest, the church in England was not ready for that kind of cultural shift. 
The church in England was not ready for that kind of hostility. They were not ready for those kinds of questions. They weren't ready to have their faith questioned in that way, to be torn up one side and down to the other, to be, to be questioned and questioned and questioned some more. They were not ready for that kind of storm. They weren't ready for that kind of hostility. And what happened, I'll tell you what happened, is, is that many in England, many people lost their, they shipwrecked their faith. That's what happened. Many churches shipwrecked because they, they, couldn't no long, they could no longer engage with that culture, with that kind of hostility. They didn't know how to ride that storm. They, they weren't prepared for it. They, were not, they, they weren't ready. And you know the rest of the story, right? Uh, many of those churches, which I've, I've told you before, right, they were on, the, 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 they were on every corner. Right? They, all, they shut down. Okay? And, and they reopened. And they reopened a little while later as oil and lubes, as gyms, as apartments, as mosques. And, and, and can you imagine shutting this place down 20 years from now, then open this place back up as an oil and lube? Right? Temple Bible oil and lube. Can you, I mean, these, these, are not just, these are not just facts that I'm pulling off the internet, things and stories of it. This is what I grew up seeing. Okay? I grew up seeing churches on every corner, <laughs> the churches on every corner closing down. One church after another closing down. Another one closed down. Another, and they opened up years later as these other things. That this, this is, this is the, the cultural... And, and um, those churches that are still in use, those buildings that are still in use by churches, they are barely maintained because the congregations that use those churches uh, are made up of, comprised of about 20, maybe 30 old ladies who are faithful, who are generous, but they're living on government pensions so they can barely afford to keep the doors of these cavernous old buildings open. They can barely afford it. And, and so if you ever make it over to England... Have, have any of you been to England here this morning? Okay, quite a few of you have. Okay, if you ever make it over there again and you happen to go to a church on a Sunday morning and you, you walk into a congregation of, like, let's say, 200 people and you're thinking, well, this is pretty good. There's 200 people here. What's Stephen talking about? You, you may not know what it is you're looking at there. So let, let me explain what it is you're looking at. What you're looking at is the British version of a mega church. That's, that's the British version. Everything's bigger and better in Texas. It's true. So, so you're looking at the British version of a mega church. And, and, and so when I tell people over there about what's going on over here at TBC, their jaw hits the floor. Like, they can hardly believe it, hardly wrap their minds around it. I don't even bother telling them what's going on up in Dallas and Houston and these other places. They wouldn't even believe me if I did. They think I was making that stuff up. Now, seriously, they think I was making it up. So, so what I'm saying is that the storm that hit there is coming over here. The storm that hit there is coming over here. It's already hit some of the coasts, right? The west coast has hit the, and of course it's hit the coast, the east coast. If you go up to the northeast, especially, right? Uh, I told you, didn't I, that the, a couple of months ago, that the staff of TBC had the privilege of going up to New York and sitting down with some church leaders, with some church planters, ministry leaders there, and they told us, they told us how rough the waters were becoming up there. Just, just two weeks before. Uh, we we uh, got, got up there. The churches, all the churches in New York City were kicked out of the public schools. They had been renting space just for the Sunday morning services and, and the law was passed and they were now kicked out. They can no longer do that in the, in, the, in the public schools. And you can imagine how hard it is to find affordable space in a city like that. The waters are getting rougher. Sat down with J.R. Vassar. J.R.'s a, a, a church planter up there. And uh, he was telling me, he says, yeah, look, people, look at you. Like There is something deficient with you. There's something wrong with you if you're a Christian or you're involved in church. Now, he says they're not quite as rude about it and insulting about it as they are over in England. He said, you know, and apparently he's 
pretty familiar with that context too as his church is actually supporting a church plant, involved in a church plant over there in Leeds in, in England. And so, and so he says, you know, we're not quite as insulting about it as they, as they are there, but he says it's heading this way. It's all heading that direction. People will look on you in pity and think there's something wrong with you. The storm that is hit there is, is heading, and is it worse, has hit the coast already, and as it worsens up there, it is heading over here. Just take a look at some of these uh, statistics. Only 15% of churches in the U.S. are growing. Only 15%. And just less than 5% of those are growing by conversion growth. You know, what, what that means is, what that means is we're shuffling the deck, right? Trouble is, we're not very good at shuffling. I'm not, anyway. And, and we keep dropping the cards as we shuffle. Right, and the deck is getting smaller, but we keep shuffling the deck. In other words, what, what, the way this works is, right, we, we at TBC, the leadership at TBC does something to really uh, annoy a, a, a bunch of you, right? And, and you're like, these people don't know how to do church. We're off. Go and find a church that does it the right way. And you find a church that does it the right way, and that church experiences growth, right? But then, you know, the leadership there does something that really ticks off a few people in that congregation, maybe a different set of people, and they up and leave, and they come over here because we do it the right way here. And, and so we experience some growth. Now, I'm not saying all of our growth comes from that, but a lot of it does. And, and what, essentially what we're doing is we're shuffling the deck, but the deck is getting smaller. Um, 10,000 churches in America disappeared in a five-year period. Five-year period. 10,000. The number of people who do not attend church has doubled in the past 15 years. Now, these things have a tendency to accelerate. They have a tendency to snowball. Okay? But let's, let's say it doesn't do that. Let's say it just carries on at the same rate. Another 15 years from now, what's it going to look like? What's it going to look like? A hundred million Americans, there are a hundred million unchurched Americans. In other words, a hundred million people who have not had any connection with the life of any church in America. A hundred million. Uh, 70% of students between the ages of 18 and 23 fall away from faith. So actually, I've seen some statistics which put it a bit higher at about 80%. 70 to 80% of students will fall away from faith. They will, not, they will shipwreck their faith. They'll go to college. They won't come back the same. They will shipwreck their faith. Now, I'm, I'm not a prophet. <laughs> I'm not claiming to be. I haven't got any delusions of grandeur there. Um, I probably do, but, but not in that, okay? Okay, not, not in that. I'm just, I'm just, all I'm doing here, right, is, is I can hear the distant thunder, and, and I can see these storm clouds gathering overhead on the horizon, and they're heading this way. But I promise you, it is about to get a lot harder to be a Christian in this environment. It's just, it's just going about to get a lot, lot harder to be a Christian in this environment. The waters are getting choppy, and your faith is going to be questioned, and it's going to be questioned, and it's going to be questioned some more. And they're going to be some pretty smart questions. They're going to be some pretty difficult questions, and you're going to be torn up one side and you're going to be torn down the other. We're about to get hit by a storm. And, and Paul says when we, get, when we live out our lives in that storm, which Paul actually says, faith in the midst of a storm, that's kind of normal. He, he looks at this as business as usual, right? We shouldn't think there's anything unusual in this. But Paul says when we live out our faith in that kind of environment, in that kind of storm, what happens is, is that people are tossed like the waves of the sea, blown here and there by every wind of teaching. And some people let go of they let go of faith, he says here, and they let go of a good conscience, and they shipwreck their faith. You see, what I'm trying to do here is establish this connection between Paul's metaphors of the sea and the storms and the shipwrecks, Paul's metaphors and our present situation, which is relatively calm. Because I want us to hear, I want us to hear the urgency in Paul's words as he says, hold on, as he talks about holding on to faith. You don't need to hold on when the waters are calm. But he talks about holding on to faith. And, and he, I want us to hear the urgency in Paul's words as he talks about holding on. 
Because he talks about holding on to a good conscience. My father-in-law uh, used to sail. Um, some of you may have heard this story before. He uh, went to, uh, to get his yacht masters and he learned how to navigate using a, a sextant, a compass, map, a north star, true north, uh, and all of that, and, uh, and a GPS. And, uh, and so he, he sells his house, and he buys this boat, this 40-foot yacht, and he gathers a team of about five, five guys, and this crew of five, they set sail from England to America. They're going to set sail from, from England to Florida. And, and so the, the, they, it's, it's, uh, they cross the Atlantic Ocean, they get into Florida, and he says, you know, you really do it for that moment where you, you come into Florida, and uh, someone asks you, or you're asked by a bunch of people, what, did you just come in from the Keys? And you're like, no, actually, you just came in from England. And he said, their reaction there, he says, it's worth it just for that. He says, it's pretty fun. On the way there, they had a five-man crew. But before they set sail on the way back, three of them had bailed. There were just, just two of them, him and his buddy. But he's, and he called us and he said, it's probably not a very smart thing to do, but we're, we're going to do it anyway. We're going we're gonna to sail, sail back to, to, from Florida to England. We're going to cross the Atlantic, which is just a two-man crew. And so they took it in four-hour shifts, four hours sailing, four hours resting. And uh, the journey should take about four weeks. But four weeks come and go and we don't hear anything. Five weeks come and go, we still don't hear anything. Six weeks come and go, we still haven't heard anything. And by this time, Julia's starting to uh, get a little worried about her dad. It takes quite a bit to get Julia worried about anything, actually. But she, she eventually starts thinking, oh, this is kind of strange. We haven't heard anything. Seven weeks come and go, we still don't hear anything. And he has been lost at sea ever since. No, that's not true. He, he's, he's been... He's, <laughs> just want to build the tension here. About seven, seven and a half weeks later, we get a call from him. And he's in Nova Scotia. And we're like, what are you doing in Nova Scotia? And he says, well, look, we got caught in this storm. And they got blown. The storm was so bad, they got blown back all the way to Nova Scotia. And, and the storm was so bad, he says, that we thought, he said, we thought we were going to die out there. We really didn't think we were going to make it. He, he said, we, we just didn't think we were going to make it. it was so, the sea was so rough. We thought it, we were goners. We, he said this, there were times when the storm was so bad that they didn't sleep for days. And at times it felt like their boat was just like a little toy boat being tossed by the waves, and every time they rode away, they weren't sure if the next one was the one that was going to drag them down with it. They, they didn't know. You know the amazing thing about that? Is in the midst of all of that storm, the raging sea, the raging winds, the, 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 the waves, in the midst of that raging storm, not once did they lose their place. Not once did they lose their bearings. They knew exactly where they were the whole time. Why? Because, of course, they had a GPS, right? And if that GPS had gone down, they had a backup GPS. And if that GPS had gone down, well, I'm not sure they actually had a third backup GPS, but what they did have was a compass and map and, and their true north, and, and they, un, they, they had some navigational skills, and they would have found, figured out where they were, and they would have found their way. As we head into this cultural storm, well, which is coming... I'm telling you it's coming. When we head into this cultural storm, we, 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 that's what we need. We're going to need the spiritual equivalent of a GPS, the spiritual equivalent of the true north, of, of, of some navigational skills, so that no matter how rough the waters get, we're going to know exactly where we are the whole time. Right? We're, we're, going, to, we're going to need, uh, if we send our kids off to college, right? and, and please understand, as you send them off into that situation where 70%, 80% are going to fall away from faith and shipwreck their faith, you are sending them into a storm. Please understand that that's what you're doing. Right? You're sending them into a hostile environment. I'm not saying don't do that. I'm just saying understand what it is you're doing. Right? We're sending them into a hostile Before we send them into that storm, and before we get hit by a storm, let, let, let's make sure that we've got this 
spiritual equivalent of a GPS, a spiritual equivalent of a true north, and, and some navigational skills. We'll be glad that we did. Paul says, hold on to faith. He talks about holding on to faith, and he talks about holding on to a good conscience. How, how do we hold on to faith, and how do we hold on to a good conscience? You know, I, I would have thought that the first, if we're going to hold on to faith, right, we need to know what this faith thing is about, right? Who, who is our faith in? What, who or what is our faith in? Right? Who is this God? What is he like? What has he done? And what is he going to do? Right? So this is, we need to know what lies at the heart of our faith, right? the, 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 the core of our faith, the center of our faith. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at, at, at the major doctrines of the Christian faith. That's what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks in this series entitled Shipwrecked. We're going to be looking at the major doctrines of the Christian faith. C.S. Lewis talks about doctrine like this. He, he says that uh, you know, nothing can beat the uh, experience of being out in the open sea. Again, with the sea metaphors. He must have liked what Paul was doing there. So, so he, he says nothing can beat the experience of actually sailing, having the wind billowing in your sails and riding those waves. He can't beat that experience. But he says uh, no amount of map reading or looking at your GPS is going to beat that experience. But he says you don't want to set sail without those things, right? You, you certainly don't want to get caught in a storm without knowing your true north where your true north is, and, and, and actually uh, having some navigational skills. Because if you do, if you get caught in the storm, you're sunk. You're, you're going to be shipwrecked. And he says that doctrine is like that. Doctrine is like that GPS. It, it is like that true north. It is like those navigational skills that will help you make sense and, and figure out where you are in the midst of the, the most violent storm. And it will allow you to, to figure out where you are and orient yourself and, and navigate your way through the storm. Now, I know that some of you just switched off a, a, a few moments ago, right? Just a few moments ago, some of you switched off. And the reason why you switched off is because I said we're going to be doing a, a series on doctrine, right? And I'm not ragging on you. I know it's kind of an involuntary thing, but as I, said, I said doctrine, you yawn, right? Doctrine, yawn, right? That's, that's just, but I, I get that. And, and you're thinking to yourself, well, well, that sounded really exciting, all this stuff about the storm and the sea and the waves and all that. But now, now you're kind of switching bait here because now you're talking about doctrine, Wait, how, how long is this series going to go? How many weeks are we going to be doing this? I'm not going to tell you how many weeks we're going to be doing this. But, but here, here's, the, here's the thing. I get that. I want you to know I get that. I get that. Because I, here's the thing. So often when we talk about doctrine, okay, there doesn't seem to be any real vital connection to what we call real life. Right? When we talk about doctrine, quite often, never mind a connection, there's often a gaping chasm between what we call doctrine and what we call the everyday grind of day-to-day living, whatever that looks like for you. You know, you know there's the stuff we say we believe, in, and then there's life, right? We've got to live, right? There's, there's this set of stuff that we, we know we really ought to believe, but, but, but then there's the grind of day-to-day life, the day-to-day living. Here's what I think is going on, okay? What I think happens here is that when the Apostle Paul uses the word doctrine, as he does in numerous places here in 1 Timothy, right, in this letter, when Paul uses the word doctrine and we use the word doctrine, I think we're using them in entirely different ways. Here's what I think of when I think of doctrine quite often. Quite often what I'm thinking of is this, is this list of abstract ideas on a piece of paper, bullet-pointed on a piece of paper, or worse, on several pieces of paper, Worse because that's longer and more boring, right? So, so I'm thinking of this abstract list of ideas on a piece of paper. Right? When the Apostle Paul talks about doctrine, he seems to be talking about the stuff of life. When I, when I think of doctrine, quite often I'm thinking of this rigid, unbending dogma 
that, that, that it could, it's so simplistic, it couldn't possibly deal with the complexities of your life and the complexities of my life. But when the Apostle Paul talks about doctrine, he seems to be talking about something that is so interwoven into the very fabric of his life that to try to separate those from life would be to undo the man himself. Paul establishes this close connection between life and doctrine when he, when he says, watch your life and doctrine closely. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Watch your life and doctrine closely. He puts those things together because he sees those things as being very closely related. The Apostle Paul also says, he says this, he says, we also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to what? Contrary to sound doctrine. I've got to be honest with you, when I think of doctrine, a list like this doesn't pop into my head. I, I don't start to think of, of, of these kinds of things and make some sort of connection with, with doctrine. Right? But apparently, Paul, Paul says that watch your life and doctrine closely. It, for him, there's this deep connection, even, even with things like um, the, every, as everyday decisions, as, as the decision to tell the truth or tell a lie. There's this connection there. Even, the, even these decisions as to what we're going to do with our sexuality. He says that there are these connections between these life choices and doctrine. He says, watch your life and doctrine closely. He, he says, hold on to faith. But he says, also hold on to a good conscience. Hold on to a good conscience. In other words, there has to be that connection between faith and, and, and life. The contents of our faith and, and life. If we don't, all we're really talking about when we talk about doctrine or the core of our faith, what we're, what we're really talking about is, is not what we believe, but what we say we believe. Right? We're, we're, we're listing a, thing, a bunch of things that we, we know that someone else believed at some other point in time, and now by convention and social pressure, we feel we have to believe that too. Paul says, no, no, no. He says, hold on to faith and hold on to a good conscience at the same time. There has to be that vital connect, connection between life and faith. You know, over the, over the years, I've had uh, several people come into my office with, uh, with this question. And, you know, I've got to tell you, first of all, they're brave people. They're courageous, and, and they are honest people when they, when they come in and ask this. And they ask this question. First of all, they're a little hesitant, right? They're, they're, they're like, oh, I don't know if I should say this. Why not? Well, you're a pastor. We're in a church. Yeah, go on, just, just spit it out. Well, what is it? Yeah, but you're a Christian. I don't want to insult your faith and, and all of that. I'm a, I'm a Christian. They said, I have been for a long time, but grown up in it. But, but I, I'm like, whatever it is, just, just tell me. We can talk about it. I'm not going to bite your head off. You know, just don't, I'm interested. Let's, let's, we can talk. And, and so they say in, a, in hushed tones, usually in a whisper, just in case God overhears or something. But, uh, what if we're wrong? Wrong about what? What if we're wrong about this whole God thing? What if there is no God? Right? What, what if there is no God? What if the atheists have got it right? What if these new atheists, you know, the ones with their books at the top of the bestseller list, Dawkins, Hitchens, and all of that, what if those guys have got it right and we're entirely wrong, there is no God? What if Jesus was not God incarnate? What if he was just another man? Because there is no God to incarnate himself and become a man. What if he's just another man? What, what, if, he's just, what, if, what if actually he, he wasn't even that good of a teacher because he's always talking about God, so obviously he was confused on that subject as well. What if we're wrong about Jesus? What, what if we're wrong about this whole Christianity thing? Right? What, what if this, this whole Christianity thing is just a colossal mistake? What, what if it's just utter nonsense? What if it's bogus? What if we're wrong? And uh, you can always see the relief on their faces when, when, I, when they get my response. And my response is always going to be the same. If you ever come with these questions, please, please do. This is my initial response. Obviously, there's a, a further discussion to be had. But my initial response is always the same. It's always going to be a shrug of the shoulders. 
Of course. Of course we could be wrong. Of course we could be wrong about this whole God thing, about this whole Jesus thing, about this whole Christianity thing. Of course, that's a distinct possibility we could be wrong. And it's not just me who's had these kinds of conversations. If you talk to any of the pastors on staff, I can guarantee you any one of them would probably have had some conversation like that. In fact, one of my colleagues, I'm not going to name names because I don't want anyone to feel uncomfortable here, but but, uh, one of my colleagues was saying that he was having the same conversation with someone who'd approached him just a couple of weeks ago. Someone tapped me on the shoulder, this last was a Wednesday, and said, look, my my friend uh, is also going through this kind of struggle right now. They need someone. Would you talk to them? You know the only shocking thing about that conversation? The only really surprising and shocking thing is this, is that we don't have those kinds of conversations more often than we do. It's kind of strange. I mean, it's kind of of strange that that we don't have those kinds kinds of conversations more often than we do. Because you see, when Paul talks about holding on to faith, he also says hold on to a good conscience. Right, so, so he can't possibly mean, when he talks about holding on to faith, he can't possibly mean that we should quell these doubts, silence these questions, uh, push out anything that we think, you know, just avoid looking at anything we think is a potential problem. He can't possibly mean that when he talks about, about holding on to a good faith because he says also, hold on to a good conscience. What if we're wrong? That's actually a great question to ask. Sometimes I wish that all of us would just allow this question to have its power and work in our lives. Okay, to, 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 to entertain that question for more. Maybe you have, but you've just never had the chance to voice it. I don't know. But, but I, 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 I suspect that we haven't, quite often we haven't let that question really have its way in our lives. To actually really ask that question, live with that question for more than two, you know, five minutes, right? For more than ten minutes. For, to live with that question for more than a couple of days. To, 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 to allow that, you know, in some ways I'm kind of tempted to sit down now and just let us uh, think about that for the next ten minutes. I'm not going to do that. But let's, not, let's make sure that we're not waiting for the storm to hit for us to ask that question for the very first time out loud. Let's not wait for the storm. You don't want to be caught in a storm, the raging sea, and then say, well, what if there's no true north? What if this map doesn't relate to anything around here? What if this compass doesn't work? What if, the, what if my navigational skills are all worthless? Let, let's, let's not wait till you get hit by the storm, and the storm is coming, before we start asking that question out loud. Before we send our kids off to college, if you've got college-age kids or, or kids who are about to go off in the, in, in the next year or two, please don't send them into that storm. Please don't send them into that storm. And for the very first time, for them to be asking that question is when they're at college. Just, just don't let them do that. Don't, don't let them, one of the best things you could do for your faith and your kids' faith would be to start asking that question now. It's a great question. It's, what, it's a question the Apostle Paul asks, right? He, he wonders, what if, what if we're wrong about this incarnation thing, the manhood and deity of Christ, the, 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 the resurrection, right? Paul asks it, and he doesn't just ask this in quiet, in a closed room. He, he, put, he commits himself to paper, and he sends it out, and he goes public with his letter, right? He sends, this is what you were looking at last week as Gary was preaching. As he was preaching on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, one of the things that Paul asks there, right, is what if, we're wrong? What if Christ was not raised from the dead? Not just anybody, mind you, but Christ. Right? The, the Son of God, the God incarnate, so the manhood and deity of Christ, the, the incarnation, and, and what if he was not raised from the dead, the resurrection? All of those doctrines roll into one. And Paul's saying, what if we're wrong? If Christ is not raised from the dead, Paul can give you his answer because he's really thought it through. He's, he's contemplated this question really seriously. And he says, we are to be pitied more than all men. We're to be pitied more than anyone. People should look on us in pity and sadness because we are wasting our lives. Waste of life. You see, for Paul, there was no question 
at all of, of, of our, these doctrines being a list of abstract ideas, bullet points on a piece of paper gathering dust. No, for Paul, these, this was the stuff of life. This was the stuff of life. For, for Paul, there was no question of these being a list of things that he says he believes uh, that, that someone else believed and now by convention and social pressure he feels he's got to believe too. No, no, no. These things were woven so intimately into the fabric of his life that to try to separate his life from his doctrine would be to undo the man himself. This was Paul's, if you like, north star, his true north. These were his, his navigational skills, his GPS, so that no matter how violent the storm became, uh, he could navigate his way. And sometimes for Paul, the, the storm got really, really rough. You know, Chase Bowers, our missions pastor, came into our, our, um, my, my office the other day, and he, and he just started sharing something about his quiet time that day and what he'd been meditating on, and he'd been looking at uh, Acts chapter, chapter 14. And in Acts chapter 14, that's where Paul is stoned and left for dead outside the, the city of Lystra. And uh, Paul's stoned and left for dead there. And, and so you can imagine him kind of coming back to consciousness and is slowly getting up, maybe with a splitting headache and feeling slightly nauseous. And maybe he limped, maybe he didn't walk, maybe he limped onto the next city, Derby. And, and he gets to Derby and he rests there that night. And the next morning, with the one eye still swollen shut, Swollen lip, maybe his face still caked with blood from the day before. He gets back at it. He gets back announcing this gospel announcement. Announcing here is this God. This is who God is. This is what God is like. This is what God has done. This is what God is going to do. He carries on with the gospel, the proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the power of, of what happens when our life and our doctrine are so tightly interwoven with each other. The Apostle Paul was able to navigate those kinds of storms. He, he went up to, to Athens, if you like, the Mars Hill, the epicenter of that particular storm. Uh, it would be like one of us, that's where all the, the philosophers and their intellectuals and all of the people who were their cultural influences. He goes to Athens, to Mars Hill. It would be like us going to, showing up in Harvard or, or Yale or you know, A&M. Uh, <laughs> probably not LSU, right? Uh, and, and so... <laughs> And, and so, it would be, it would be, and, and so he, he engages these people, not, not just for a few hours, for a few days. And he even persuades some of them to carry on uh, the conversation with him. They say, yeah, some of us are interested. We want to know a bit more. Let's come back. Let's carry on talking. And, and Paul persuaded them to carry on talking because he was, he was able to do that, not with clever arguments, not with clever arguments, but with the power of the Spirit who had already woven these doctrines, these truths into the fabric of Paul's life. He was able to engage them in a very different way. It wasn't just a matter of, of, of coming at them with um, rejecting everything they thought and believed and, and then chucking his doctrine rocks at them, right? That's not what Paul was doing. That's what you do when there's still this kind of disconnect between faith and, and, and life and life, faith and conscience, life and doctrine. When there's still that disconnect, when there's still just a list of, of bullet points on a piece of paper. We tend to use them like these doctrine rocks we throw at people. That's not what Paul was doing. It's a very different kind of engagement with the culture around him. He, he was able to go up there and say, well, this is, I'm going to reject this because this is just stupid. This is bad thinking. But some of this thinking, this is just great. This is brilliant thinking. I'm going to adopt this. And this, well, we just need to turn this so that it starts pointing to the glory of God and we can redeem this kind of thinking. It's a very different engagement with the culture around him. And, and he was able to persuade them to carry on talking with him, as I said, not with clever arguments, 
sense, but, but because God had already woven these into his life. He persuaded them in the power of the Spirit, who had already made sure that these doctrines were not so much disjointed abstract ideas in Paul's grip, but a story that had Paul in, in its grip. Well, my hope is that we are going to learn to continually to watch our life and doctrine closely as we go through this series that we would, that we would really work hard at, at, at holding on to faith but also holding on to a good conscience at the same time. And, and my prayer is that we would do this now, that we would do this now in this calm, in this quiet before the storm. Let's come before God in prayer. Father, we thank you for the faith you've given us and, and have brought us this far. Father, you know my concern, my heartfelt concern for what is about to happen next. And I'm pleading with you, Father, that you would help us to be prepared for that storm that's about to hit. Father, that you would prepare us, Father, that we would not allow these truths, these doctrines to be just ideas on a bit of paper, bullet points. But, Father, that these would truly be woven into the fabric of our lives. Father, we pray that we would know, truly know the north, the true north and, and, uh, and have, pick up the navigational skills we're going to need so we can ride out this storm and glorify you at the same time. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And we're dismissed. <laughs>